Today's teaching comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you know that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that what I returned I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The 17th century French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal had a famous argument that's often called Pascal's wager. And he puts it essentially like this, that human beings bet with their lives whether God exists or not. Pascal said also uh, basically that, look, you're better off wagering with your life that God does exist um, because if you're wrong, you lose less was his essential argument. So if, if you um, wager with your life that, that uh, God does exist, if you're wrong, maybe you miss out on a few pleasures or indulgences here and there. Um, but, you know, uh, if you're right, you have this eternal reward. And so that, you know, the deck is stacked in a sense. However, if you bet with your life that God doesn't exist and you're wrong, the consequences are devastating. So on the most bare bones level, there's a logic that we can see, obviously, in, in Pascal's wager, his way of putting things. My problem with it, though, is every time I hear it, um, it seems to suggest that there's little or no way of knowing or experiencing whether God is there or, or not, that we just are making this blind leap to a fundamentally distant being, which doesn't 
really accord with the God who seems to be uh, doing everything possible to introduce himself to us in a personal way in the New Testament. So this type of, uh, uh, this picture of God though as this distant being that we have to make a, a fundamentally blind leap towards is very prevalent in our world. Um, and that really matters. How we imagine God, how we picture God really matters, has you know, profound implications for our lives. Um, many of us kind of grew up and, and whether we, you know, specifically said this or had this said to us that we sort of live with this idea that we're going to, you know, our life is going to end and we're going to show up on the doorsteps of the afterlife and there's going to be some massive scale there and all the good in our life is going to be put on one side and all the bad in our life is going to be put on one side and whatever weighs more will determine our our, our future. And, and as much as we may know that that doesn't really, you know, make sense or it's hard to, you know, find an origin for that type of story, uh, in Alpha, this comes up all the time. This is sort of a basic intrinsic thing that we return to in our, in our human story that basically one day we're just going to be evaluated on how much good we did or how much bad we, we, we did. And so you'll hear people say like, I don't know, you know, much about God, but I'm a, I'm a good person. And, and it, it's reasonable until you start to get a little bit under the surface. A.W. Tozer said that, that what you think about God is the most important thing in your life. It's the most important consideration that you make as a human being. What you think about God, how you picture God, how you imagine God to be, or even if you could say how you interact with God. C.S. Lewis uh, argued from the other side that actually the most important thing is what God thinks about us. Whatever we think about God, certainly more importantly, is what God thinks about us. And I don't think that we have to put them in too much disagreement. I think they're in different ways saying a very similar thing. Our view of God, if we believe in God at all, is probably shaped by what we think God thinks of us. Is he fundamentally loving towards us? Is he fundamentally disappointed? Is he, is he you know, categorizing all our mistakes and waiting to pounce on us? Or has he cast our you know, mistakes and failures into the sea of forgetfulness? Our view of God really matters for our life. And, and philosophers, poets, songwriters, mathematicians, human beings across the ages have been trying to make sense of this. Is this some distant being that we're blindly, you know, making a leap towards? Or is this, you know, a being who is as close as our very breath, who is as near as our next heartbeat? We've just heard Jesus tell a parable. And without a careful reading of it, I think it uh, there's a lot of landmines in this parable where, where we can make a mistake that will further or worsen our images, our imagination, our speculation about God. I think there's a way to read this parable of the talents, or if you have a new NIV, the parable of the bags of gold. It's sometimes called the parable of the coins, the parable of the pounds. It's got a lot of names, but um, it's, it's, it's a relatively familiar parable to us. And there's, there's a way to read this parable as sort of with like a harsh capitalistic lens um, that, that gives us one interpretation. There's a way to read this with a grumpy, older religious lens. And, and we might conclude basically that God gives good, you know, good things to good people. And those good people use those gifts as wise investments that produce great results. And the ones who don't are despised and punished. And 
It's amazing how without some regular cultivation of our hearts and minds, that type of religious or capitalistic understanding of a story like this creeps in and we imagine that God's fundamentally disappointed with us, fundamentally ready to pounce on us for our mistakes, fundamentally seeing the way in, you know, in year 12 or year 24 or year 44 of our lives, we blew it in some fundamental way and we've been off track ever since. But I don't think that's a very good reading of this parable. And I know that it will not leave you with a very accurate picture of God. This story is told twice in the Gospels, once here in Matthew, as we just read, and once in Luke. And there are many similarities in the telling of, these, uh, of, of this parable in the two different Gospels, but there are also some key differences. So more than likely what we're working with here is a story that was told by Jesus several times, probably more than twice, in several different settings. Um, so this was important to Jesus for conveying something crucial about the kingdom of God, about the nature of God, about how God interacts with us in the world, about maybe mistakes people of his, his day and moment were making, and, and all the implications that come out across the ages for that. So in Matthew, which is the one we read, the story follows, um, and it's important if we're going to grasp what these parables are about to see where they come in the narrative flow of the gospel. But in Matthew, the story follows the, uh, the parable of the ten virgins. And if the parable of the talents or the parable of the bags of gold is in the greatest hits, the parable of the ten virgins is definitely a B-side. It does not nearly get as much play. It is, it is not in the top 100. Um, but Interesting to note, it seems like it's two fundamentally different mistakes that are being made in these parables. The trouble in the the parable of the ten virgins is that half of the virgins end up missing this wedding celebration because they aren't prepared. They haven't counted on the challenge of having their oil lamps ready and the moment comes and they, they're rushing around and they're asking the, the, the ones who do have oil if they can borrow and they can. And they, so they go to buy the oil and, and they miss and they end up locked out of the celebration. So in one sense, the mistake of the 10 virgins or half of them at least is they thought it was too easy. Whatever their engagement with the kingdom of God is, they thought it was too easy. But in this parable, the parable of the, the bags of gold or the talents, the servant who ends up in trouble thought his master's expectations were too harsh, were too risky for investment. He thought it was too dis- difficult. Their mistake was they thought it was too easy. His mistake was he thought it was too difficult. And we see in these two parables in Matthew back to back the mistakes that it is so easy for us to fall into when it comes to our conception of God. One is the, 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 the first, that, that we can make God just like us. God essentially becomes an extension of ourselves, someone who basically would never confront us because God would never have an idea that's not like our ideas, who's not really holy. We don't have that uh, conception of God in this too easy version, who wouldn't shake up our schedule, who wouldn't shake up our life plans, who's basically like a gentle life coach that we can come to when we want. This is where you get like, I'm spiritual, but it's all on my terms, or I'm spiritual, but not religious. Like, I'm going to take the best of what I can gather from these different traditions. I I, I want something transcendent, but fundamentally, I'm the one who's in control. The other mistake we can make is that God is a harsh and distant taskmaster who's ready to pounce on us with judgment. The the third servant in this this parable is like, I I knew you to be someone who who reaped where you hadn't sown and who collected things that, that weren't yours to collect. He basically, to the master's face, calls him a thief. I think these parables back to back in Matthew 
are showing us that neither of these conceptions of God are going to do. God is holy. He's different than us. He's not just a gentle life coach out there somewhere that we come to every now and then again when it suits us. God is holy, but also God is gracious, maybe more so than we can possibly fathom, more, 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 more loving than we can imagine. And our way to discover what God is really like is not some philosophical wager in our mind. What would this distant deity be like? It's to come to Jesus. What's God like? The New Testament says over and over and over again, the answer to that question is Jesus. We're we're invited not simply to speculate about what God might be like. When we do that, often we make a God in the image of our worst fears. New Testament is saying over and over again, we're invited to see God in the person of Jesus. And I, I don't think that this parable is an exception, but we need to look at it because the surface reading can seem a little bit misleading. So Matthew's version begins, as we, as we read just a moment ago, uh, verse, verse 14 of, of chapter 25. Again, it will be like again. So he's talking about what's the kingdom of God like? And you know we've said this over and over again, but when you have something, all these different images, all these different stories stacked on one another, it's because no one individual story can do all the work. The, the, the combination of this imagery, the stacked nature of these stories means that the reality is transcendent. Each peace brings along a crucial portion of what we need to to see to understand God and how he works in the world and the kingdom. But but we need all these pictures in order to, to not be too narrow in our understanding. So he says, again, the kingdom, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted wealth to them. And then we have the, you know, what they do with that wealth and the results that come. Luke's version begins with a little more detail. Luke 19, verse 12, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, another name of the parable I didn't mention, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So I don't want to make too much of this because we're going to be focusing on Matthew's version here. There's plenty there to get into. But this idea, these, these extra details that Luke includes, uh, the idea of a noble person or a ruler going on a journey and seeking to be appointed as king wasn't some kind of you know fiction pulled out of thin air to first century Israel, right? They knew multiple examples of this exact reality happening. Herod the Great, for example, made just such a journey to to Rome in 40 BC to have his power and authority vindicated and authorized by Rome. He went and said, will you make me king of this region? And he came back with royal authority. So Herod the Great had made just such a journey to Rome and had come back as king. Archelaus went to Rome in 4 BC to make his case to to Rome to be king instead of his brother Antipas. And he had ended up banished and in exile. So Herod the Great's a journey was a success. Uh, Archelaus's journey was not a success. And so I think it's helpful for us to know that this type of journey wasn't just a fiction pulled out of thin air, but it would have been familiar to Jesus' hearers because this is one of the implications at least. 
they would have known that it was a risky moment in the story when the leader had left before you knew what the verdict about their authority or their kingship was going to be. Do you publicly identify with them in the meantime before they come back? And it's a risk. It's an investment. If you publicly identify them and they come back as king, you get the reward for betting on them early. If you publicly disagree with them and they come back as king, you could end up with your head on a stake. And you so, so you see, there are levels to the investment in this story that are more than just the bags of gold. What does public identification look like? What does obedience to this future vision look like? This parable is not just about who's a savvy investor with the bags of gold or the minas and who isn't. We are talking about faithfulness. Faithfulness even more than results. We are talking about public identification. We are talking about the risks of obedience that come from our conception of the heart of God. The gifts that are given in the story are given by grace. Even though they're not given equally in, in Matthew's version, they are given equally in Luke's version. The, the reality is no, no matter what, the person hasn't earned these gifts, no matter where we begin, whether it's the five bags or the, or the two bags. Um, and when, you, when, when the results are, are being accounted for, both are celebrated for being faithful, whether they, they doubled the five or doubled the two. It was about faithfulness and public identification and, and getting out there and, and taking risks of obedience. And the celebration of their faithfulness is that if you have been faithful in this small thing, you can be trusted with something greater. It didn't mean they got a retirement package in the kingdom of God. It meant that they had greater responsibility to continue stewarding the reality of the kingdom in more places. And actually, if you're faithful in a small thing, these bags of gold, these talents were extraordinarily wealthy. We're talking about multiple years of, 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 of wages all, all combined. What's the heart behind this though? God is interested in sharing his life with us. We say this all the time at Trinity Grace. We live in a relational world because it is the overflow of a relational creator. God in his very nature and existence is, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God and yet in community. So love is at the center of God and the center of the universe. And that's why when Jesus summarizes what's the most important thing in the world and all the law and the prophets is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We live in this relational world over and over again. The, the, the Torah, the law and the prophets, the New Testament is insisting God wants to share his life with us. He wants to share his death with us. He wants to share his resurrection with us. He wants to share his future vision of the world, our renewal of the kingdom of this future with him in, in glory. And what we do with what God shares with us is a crucial part of this story but it's also shaped by the view we have of God and then how we live out that view. From the very beginning, God has been insistent on sharing life with, with people. In, in Genesis, back in the Garden of Eden, and we're not gonna go through the, the, the whole Bible as we do sometimes, but back in the Garden of Eden, God had given human beings this tremendous privilege and calling of having dominion over the earth. We sometimes wanna diminish that because it makes us feel a little bit bashful, but he said, I want you to rule with me. I want you to have dominion over the earth, creative authority, exercise um, th th this, this, this authority that I've given you in the world. So 
God had given Adam and Eve this role to play. We use the English word steward or guardian to describe it, but the word in Hebrew is a word we've talked about before. It's the word shomer. To be a shomer is to be a legal guardian with a sacred duty, to care for and to cultivate what you have been entrusted with. It is to make the most of it. And you can see why there's a bearing as we think about this parable. But all the way back to the beginning, God is saying, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. I want you to be a shomer of the world, care for the world, represent Yahweh in the world. Take the natural resources that God has given you. And by natural resources, I, I mean time. I mean energy, I mean soil, I mean wood. I, I, I want you to make, make cities and build instruments and write songs and build families and make communities and have meals and come together and have feasts and, and do life and share and be doing that in, with love for God and love for your neighbor at the very heart of, of this relational world. But this idea of a shomer is so crucial throughout the, the entire Hebrew scriptures, Mark Sayers um, has, has written about this. He recounts an old story of, of, of rabbis debating what a shomer's responsibility would be in different situations. And uh, a shomer has been entrusted with a basket of apples. But the apples start to go bad before the friends who, who's entrusted them with this apple return. So what does the shomer do? And it's not a simple answer. The, the, the rabbis, they debate, they consult the scriptures, they turn the, the, the question over and over again in conversation, and they decide in the end that the, 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 what the shomer's responsibility is to turn the apples into applesauce instead of letting them rot so that they can last longer until uh, the person returns. Being a shomer is a significant part of what God's intention and heart for humanity to share in this authority. But that authority was significantly lost in the fall. In the fall in Genesis, there's, 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 um, the shomer stumble and, and choose to be their own gods and, and, and do, don't do well with what they've been entrusted with. And then God entrusts an angel to be the shomer over the way back into the garden so that no one can enter that again. But God didn't give up. The idea of the shomer comes up over and over again. Cain and Abel, am I my brother's shomer? Abraham becomes a shomer of the covenant as he leaves his family, leaves what is familiar and begins this journey with Yahweh into this new place. He becomes the shomer of a covenant. Esau is the shomer of a covenant and he famously um, relinquishes his responsibility for a bowl of soup in that story with Esau and Jacob. We know that he's famished and that he's being tricked, but at the same time, it's unthinkable that a shomer would let go of his responsibility in that way. When we had this famous night with Jacob after he's tricked his brother out of his inheritance and he's become the shomer of God's promises, the shomer of the covenant, he has this night of anxious prayer wondering if he's going to be able to keep what he has tricked his brother to get. And God affirms in this night of prayer that the covenant is indeed Jacob's to keep, that he's going to make a nation out of him. And yet there's a twist in that moment. <laughs> For the first time in the scripture since God has given this authority to, to human beings to be the shomer, he says something really powerful to Jacob. The, the, the Lord says, behold, I am with you and will keep you. Often when you see that word keep in the Old Testament, it's the word shomer. I will shomer you 
wherever you go. So yes, the blessing is yours to keep, but I'm going to Shomer you. From that time on in the scripture, Shomer is used in these two primary ways. God is giving people the responsibility in his covenant, in this place of promise to Shomer these, to, to, to steward this reality in the world, this authority, but then God Shomers his people faithfully. It's a powerful picture. This parable, the, the talents, the bags of gold, is a microcosm of this reality. God has given us incredible gifts in the person of Jesus. These gifts, these gifts are un, un, unfathomably good. His life and death and resurrection means we have access to his kingdom and invitation into the family. But even to his disciples who had that very reality, he says the best is still yet to come. And there's this intermediary time where we have to decide what are we going to do? What vision of God do we have? What are we going to sow into the world? What are we going to invest with? What are we going to be primarily about? And this parable is getting at that. And so as I was praying and preparing for this week's message, as we've been moving through these you know, greatest hits of Jesus' parables in Eastertide, I had a really strong sense that where we needed to land today was in a, a tender and pastoral place, that God has some things he wants to say to our hearts today. That all this is interesting, and, and I think there's uh, a lot even still to ring out about the, the context and the implications of this parable, but I hope that most of all today, you won't just be mentally considering what God is like, but you will be dealing with this God who is more loving than you can possibly fathom. This is my question to you. I have a couple of questions that I hope will uncover the real places of our heart. What is your picture of God? Not the answer that you think you're supposed to give, but what do you really think about God? How do you imagine God really thinks about you? That's a tremendously important question for our hearts. It's right there in the parable. How they treat what they've been given ends up being based on how they imagine the master to be, how they imagine the God in this story. So I can tell you what the parable says. It's there for you too. We have someone who's entrusting us with gifts, who's radically generous in blessing us, uh, but who's also not protecting us from all the risk in the world, who's also not, not keeping us from the, the possibility of, of stumbling in significant ways. But we have one who values faithfulness over perceived results. We have a world that radically overvalues perceived results over character, over faithfulness. God's the opposite. He radically values faithfulness over perceived, uh, perceived results. The world looks at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We have one who went to a far country for us, who's going to go down into death for us, who's going to ascend into heaven while we await the promise, right? This story has multiple sort of time implications and over and over the disciples are struggling with this reality that Jesus is making this descent for us, but he's also coming back. The resurrection is over all of these parables, the one who died and rose for us. So where does your picture of God come from? Is it what you most often and repeatedly think about God? Is it an image that's made from sort of a collection of my worst fears? Or is it like through rose-colored glasses and, and God's my you know, sort of spiritual buddy who never would confront me? Or, or 
Does our picture of God come through the person of Jesus? I'll just share really personally from my, from my life, something that I've come back to over and over again. And I don't remember hearing this before. I felt like God whispered into my heart, but um, I felt like years ago, uh, God said to me, Caleb, you, you love to live in what ifs. I don't want you to forget that I am. You love to live in what ifs, but I am. And that ever-presentness of God is something that, that uh, I want to hold on to in, in, de- in the depths of my heart. I, I hope that, that speaks and ministers to you today. What if God won't forgive me? What if God's fundamentally disappointed with me? What if God doesn't answer my prayer? What if my life doesn't end up in the place that I thought it was? What if my kids, one of my kids stump, stumbles in a significant way? What if I'm not there to protect them? What if this bad thing happens? What if our church ends up in this place? All these what ifs that begin to spin and my picture of God can begin to be diminished by these what if questions in my heart. And and God says to me, I am. In just John's gospel alone, there's seven famous I am statements. So if you want to begin, you know, sort of sharpening the focus on the lens of your picture of God, you want to begin interacting with places that God is guaranteed to be at work in his word. I am the bread of life, nourishment for your soul, nourishment for your life. I am the light of the world. I am the one who shows things for what they really are and can illuminate the next steps in your life. I am the door. I am your access point to the kingdom of God and all all the promises of the covenant. I am the good shepherd. I'm not just letting you in. I'm guiding you along the way. I'm leading you into pasture. I'm leading you into abundance. I am the resurrection of the life. Even when you come to the end, every limitation that you face in this life, I am going to transcend it in my own resurrection that you have a share in. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am not just a philosophical idea. I am the very access point of a relational connection to God and to your neighbor. I am the true vine. Every bit of fruit that you're longing for in your life comes from abiding in me. Just take just the I am statements of the gospel of John. You got a pretty rich treasure chest to begin with. What if versus I am? What's your picture of God? Does it come as a collection of just ideas you've had or is it rooted in the person of Jesus? A second pastoral question is what do you have buried in fear in your life? I think this parable teaches us that we are accountable for whatever picture of God we let live in our hearts. It doesn't mean that we can't have a moment of misrepresentation that shows up in our minds or hearts, but what we allow to live in our hearts as a picture of God is really significant and and, and, and important. So that's essentially our theology. And if your theology makes you care less or love less, then it's bad theology. And I'll just tell you you a couple of ways that I've seen this work out or or, or periods that this worked out in my mind. My life. If you have a picture that basically God's done with the world and he's just going to take everyone away and, and your end times picture um, is, is that God's going to trash this place and start somewhere entirely new, that's going to, many times, that leads to laziness in our engagement in the world. Jesus is saying, I want you to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Care about the things that are going on in your city. Care about the things that your neighbor is wrestling with. Care about your environment. Live Literally invest yourself in sowing into this world. Martin Luther was famously asked, what would you do if you found out that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And he said, plant a tree. 
And, and immediately, like, you're like, what is he talking about? He's saying, no, this world, God has plans for it. He's going to renew it and redeem it and bless it. And if your theology is escapist, then you're going to become lazy in your engagement in the world. It's going to make you love less. It's bad theology. If your theology is cheap grace, that God will just forgive anything. It doesn't matter how I live at all. Once I've received the forgiveness of God, I can do with it what I want. You're eventually going to, you're going to care less and love less. You're going to become more selfish. You're going to become more wrapped up. You're going to just traverse this very small sort of cage of selfishness that you live in. The same thing works though on the other end. If you if you think salvation is, is, is works and you've got to earn it and you've got to do everything good in order for God to give you favor and what happens is you become a person of pride and self-righteousness always looking down on someone else. The only way we're going to dig up the things in our life that we have buried in fear It's if we learn to hear the loving voice of our Savior saying, I am to us. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of the life. So I want you to think really honestly. No one can hear your thoughts. Are there things you've buried? Promises that you think God spoke to you that you've been ignoring? Maybe there's a sense of calling that you know is stirring just under the surface in your life. Maybe there's a passion or a conviction or a sense of engaging in in, in a life of justice in our world or generosity. Maybe there's a God-given ability that you've been ignoring. Maybe there's a relational responsibility that you know you need to take action on. Maybe there's some very concrete step of obedience that God has asked you to take and you've been putting it off for some reason. I believe God truly, by the Spirit, wants to minister today to to people who have something buried in their life because they've allowed some false picture of God to be entertained in their mind or heart too long. And it's time to dig those things up and reinvest them in the world. Whether you were worried about what God might say about you or worried about what your neighbor might say of you, God is saying, no, I've entrusted you with this and I want it to be invested in the world. I want you to be a showmer of this thing I've given you. The last question is sort of a, a, a second part of that. What do you have buried? And that's this. Maybe just another way to get at it, but what do you have that needs to be invested in your world by faith? What do you have that needs to be invested in your world by faith? Maybe you don't think of having buried it, but I think this past year has been so challenging that There are things that were really central or important or are part of our calling or part of our identity or part of our life that we've sort of let slip away. And maybe we didn't think of consciously burying it, but it's time to say, I've had this imagination for something that could be. I have this way I want to engage with my children. I have this way I want to be at work. I have this act of generosity. I have this this, this person I think God's inviting me to, to do. I have these things I want to read. I have these things I want to write. I have these things I want to try. What do you have that needs to be invested in the world by faith? I want to give you, I want to give you one of the, I think, most powerful parts of this story, and that is that faith matters, that courage matters, that engagement matters, that getting out there and doing something matters, but the results are up to God. That is so wonderfully freeing. <laughs> 
whether you have five and you get five or you have two and you get two, the main thing is don't just bury it. Don't just leave it because your picture of God is, is harsh. And ultimately, the master comes back and says, you wicked and lazy servant, you're still stewing in this false picture of me. So go on, take that false picture of me. He basically says what C.S. Lewis says, either we say to God, your will be done, or God says back to us, okay, fine, your will be done. If we keep insisting. Faith matters, courage matters, engagement matters, results are up to God. This is a kingdom parable, not a capitalist warning. Begin sowing what God has given you in faith, in hope, in love. Is there a risky conversation that you need to have? Is there a first step towards forgiveness and reconciliation that you need to take? Is there a a secret act of generosity that God's inviting you to? Is there some difficult step of obedience that you've been thinking, I'm not going to do that. I think I'll fail. I want to invite you to make the most of what you've been given. I think this parable is an invitation to make the most of what you've been given because the God behind the parable is better than you could possibly imagine who's willing to step into the very worst parts of our curse, our failure, our, our, our lost authority, our lost dominion, everywhere that we've been a shomer and stumbled and fallen and left it broken and shattered. He stepped in and says, I'm taking this on myself. I'm offering you grace. I'm offering you love. I'm offering you life. I'm offering you place in the family church. Let's make the most of what we've been given. Let's invest in love in obedience, in sacrifice for the sake of our King who is returning. And the best is yet to come. We ended last week here. I want to say it again. Your life is not slipping away from you, church. You are speeding towards it. Plant a tree. Invest in the world that is to come. Invest now in what matters most, in loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Heavenly Father, would you do what no sermon words of mine can do? Would you minister in the depths of your people's hearts and minds? Would you, would you call any place where we've, we've nurtured a distortion of who you really are? Would you correct that, God, not just as some distant lens being, being adjusted so we see 2020, but would you embrace us with your love? I pray in the name of Jesus that you would embrace your church with your love today, that you would heal our misconceptions of who you are with an embrace, not just a theological tweak, but an embrace of our hearts. Would you, would you help us? Would you go with us to dig up the things that we have buried in fear? And would you show us what we have that is meant to be invested in our world? Maybe it feels like the smallest, most insignificant, inconsequential thing. And yet in your heart, in your kingdom's values, it is off the charts to be the first to to move in forgiveness or generosity or love or whatever it is. Lead us, God, by your spirit. You know the places. You are the true vine. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Help us make the most of what we've been given. In Jesus' name, amen.